Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior Tomorrownauts. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast. I'm Nick from Tomorrowland Times, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel Before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. To close out the movie's fifth anniversary year, this is the first episode of a 12-part series in which we'll be taking a deep dive into Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic. Rather than break the movie up into arbitrary chunks of time, we've separated out meaningful sequences of scenes to put under a critical lens each episode. I can certainly imagine us doing a more granular analysis at some point down the road, but this allows us to set a more transitional pace from the feature-length commentary we released for the first anniversary. If you'd like to follow along, today we'll be covering the first sequence of scenes comprising the first 15 minutes and 24 seconds or so of the theatrical version of the movie, which we have dubbed All's Fair at the World's Fair. As we go, we'll be featuring a handful of recurring segments, starting with one inspired by the brilliant Soundtrack Show podcast, a Tomorrowland theme tracker. And while I'm no David W. Collins, I'll be doing my best to identify and tally the movie's musical motifs as they appear. At the end of 12 episodes, we'll crown the most prolific melody and hopefully unveil some hidden secrets lurking in Michael Giacchino's score. On that note, in Brad Bird's written introduction for the sadly out-of-print soundtrack, which now commands outrageous prices on the secondary market, he identified the four main themes that we'll be focusing on. A rousing fanfare for Casey and Tomorrowland itself. gentle sweet for Athena. A sort of wistful remembrance for the secretive plus ultra society. a nefarious ditty for our villain, David Nix. Starting off, we're treated to a little overture of sorts, featuring a parade of the three central themes one after the other. But which one greets us first? Any guesses? No doubt the melody for Tomorrowland opens Tomorrowland, right? In fact... The first theme that appears in Tomorrowland over the opening logos is the one that belongs to Athena. It moves directly into the Plus Ultra theme, crescendoing finally with the Tomorrowland theme over the opening title cards. (laughs) 
those opening title cards were created by the design agency Ewan Company. And in an interview with Creative Planet Network, their creative director, Garson Yu, spoke about his discussions with director Brad Bird about the film's themes that should be embodied in the titles. He said, Brad described Tomorrowland as a dream that we can't reach, but it's there all the time. That was a very important concept. In the main title, we revealed the name Tomorrowland in the distance, lit not by the sunrise, but by the energy of the atom representing hope. Hope is always there, even if we can't reach it. The title card he's describing was based on a napkin sketch done by Brad Bird, which you can see a picture of in an article by Tomorrowland graphic designer Clint Schultz in the August 2015 issue of the Art Director Guild's Perspective magazine. The blue and orange coloration was chosen to intentionally mirror the official colors of the 1964 New York World's Fair, which, despite this episode's title, is not the first location shown in the movie. The movie opens with a single pin of light flashing into a wash of digital noise, revealing George Clooney as Frank Walker staring right down the barrel of the lens. He's speaking to the audience, laying down the stakes of the movie with visions of literal ticking clocks and doomsday narration. Now, I've admittedly had trouble coming to terms with this opening bookend, which was notoriously added during the film's reshoots. I've heard conflicting stories of why that was, and... Certainly, different versions were scripted in an attempt to address an existing structure the studio and the creative team felt was not working. But according to some who were there, it was an attempt to get Clooney into the movie earlier as he wouldn't show up until about halfway through. But according to Damon Lindelof, who I spoke to more recently, his memory was quite the opposite. The bookend was intended to get Casey into the movie before going off on a World's Fair adventure with young Frank. Regardless of the intention, even if the idea of this introduction sets up a finale that made everyone involved feel better about the shape of the movie, the execution of the movie's formative moments left many confounded. I've often compared the bumpy release of Tomorrowland to that of Blade Runner, and while you might balk at the comparison... As an analogy, I'd simply say the opening is a lot like the narration present in the original release of that film. It has its defenders. And look, I grew up with the Blade Runner narration and I still have a noir nostalgia for it at times. But nobody can deny that both of these things exist as a band-aid that doesn't quite match the skin of the rest of their respective movies. It's attempting to establish a tone that's light on its feet with a brooding Frank sitting in front of his monitors, shaken out of his diegetic reality by Casey's interrupting narration. It's cute. It's jumping around. It's freezing interrupted frames. And the rewritten screenplay featured more of this kind of interplay. But as it stands, I think it's doing either too much or too little to really sell the idea. I saw Tomorrowland many times in theaters, and the first few opening jokes never quite landed with the audience. And I think the movie lost a lot of folks in the first few seconds. I really try not to focus on what something doesn't do, and in the interest of looking at what it does do, is introduce the central dynamic of the two main characters right away. Immediately, we see a man jaded by lost visions of the future, and we hear a youthful, exuberant voice off-screen trying to pull him back to the light. Performance-wise, Clooney is doing something extremely difficult here, and he's making it look easy. Even if it ends up feeling a bit too much like one character giving another character notes on how to start his story as a mirror of the studio giving notes to the filmmakers. 
And if there's a mixed blessing about perhaps too literally stating your intentions up front, it's that more nuanced, dramatic themes have room to blossom throughout the rest of the movie. Themes don't live in a character's mouth. They emerge from the observable choices they make in the course of the drama. And that's how I've personally come to terms with this quasi fourth wall breaking prologue. It's an invitation to dive deeper by getting the surface out of the way in a matter of seconds. But this wasn't always how the movie opened. The first cut of the film opened linearly, with Frank as a boy making a jetpack in his father's barn. We do get a small slice of these scenes in the form of interstitial flashbacks within flashbacks once Frank makes it to the fair in the newly juggled non-linear form of the theatrical release. That spectacular montage of sights from the World's Fair was originally even more spectacular, with shots from inside the Carousel of Progress, which was, of course, later relocated to Walt Disney World where they filmed those scenes. But those shots didn't make the final cut. We might not see it, but its spirit lives on in the prominent needle drop of Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, which was reorchestrated by Giacchino for the movie while still maintaining that original Rex Allen vocal track. Now, as much as I love that attraction, if I could restore only one deleted element from the World's Fair montage, it would have to be the IBM probability machine. A series of thousands of balls falling at random into troughs marked with the correctly predicted distribution at the bottom. This was a real demonstration at the fair, and it was replicated for the movie, and I think it really beautifully establishes concepts that will recur later in the form of the device that ultimately gets Frank banished from Tomorrowland. It just would have been so delicious to hide that idea in plain sight right up front. These balls follow a random path. No one can tell in advance where any individual ball will land. But advanced computing determines exactly where they will end up. The power of prediction, ladies and gentlemen. So there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. The extended World's Fair montage and that full Young Frank farm opening are still digital exclusive deleted scenes. They weren't included on the DVD or Blu-ray releases, uh, but hopefully they'll eventually find their way onto Disney Plus for everyone to enjoy. Just gotta wait till September, I guess, if you're in America. The World's Fair brings us to another recurring segment on our show, the Museum Minute. History, art, salvaging it. Rather, it was lost forever. It's our long-term goal to eventually open a museum of tomorrow a la Steve Sansweet's Rancho Obi-Wan to display the collection we've amassed of screen-used and production-made items from the movie. And we'll highlight a few of them here, starting with the World's Fair items we've been able to locate thus far. Now, when costumes are laundered or stored, any embellishments or patches are often removed from the garments, and as such, we've been able to acquire quite a few World's Fair employee patches, pins, and badges from Greyhound bus drivers to Pinkerton security officers, and my personal favorite is the Small World cast member patches. We've also been lucky enough to find a few souvenir hats with the World's Fair logo that was redesigned for the movie to avoid rights clearance issues. But the greatest item we found by far was a production-made 1964 pin from the original artisan Maggie Spock. She's a legendary jeweler in the film industry, and it's just like the one given to Frank by Athena and those extras that we learned were called the Nix Six after being selected as plus ultra candidates by Hugh Laurie's character. It's a really beautiful pen with a unique kind of convex shape to the metal base and a clear enamel dome that encases the entire design. 
Moving on from props, all aboard as we approach our next segment, Location Station. The hover rail will be arriving in one minute. In which we'll talk about the real-world locations used to shoot the movie. The exterior of the World's Fair was not shot in Flushing Meadows Corona Park in New York, but on the grounds of the University of British Columbia. Minimal site trusting was constructed, and the more iconic background structures such as the Unisphere were added in digitally. The fictional Hall of Invention, home to the Inventors Competition in which young Frank hopes to enter his jetpack, found its exterior in the H.R. Macmillan Space Center at the Museum of Vancouver. That Hall of Invention scene, uh, where Frank first meets Nix and eventually Athena, it's one of my favorites in the movie. Mr. Walker, please tell me you can do better than fun. Anything's possible. I, I don't know what that means. If I was walking down the street and I saw some kid with a jetpack fly over me, I'd believe anything's possible. I'd be inspired. Doesn't that make the world a better place? I suppose it would. If it worked, unfortunately, it does not. This exchange is nuanced, evocative screenwriting. And while it's difficult to ever attribute credit in a collaboration, it feels like classic Lindelof to me. It has a casually mythic quality he would later display so resonantly in The Leftovers. That look of surprise and awe on Hugh Laurie's face while this kid unzips a huge duffel bag he just plunked on his desk and begins to assemble a jetpack. It's brilliant. It's knowing. And this battle of wits between them is interrupted by the off-screen introduction of Athena asking, He made this yourself. The camera pans left from these two titans to reveal a little girl in a light blue dress, one which, upon closer inspection, you would find contains golden ratio spirals of algorithms printed on the fabric. Athena's theme returns here in gentle strings, and young Frank is smitten. She asks him why Frank made his jetpack, and he responds with a piece of dialogue I'll admit to having made something of a personal mantra. I guess I got tired of waiting around for someone else to do it for me. I guess I just got tired of waiting around for someone else to do it for me. (laughs) This hits a special chord. Uh, In the early days of Tomorrowland Times, Hasten and I decided to produce a three-month, real-time fan fiction sequel to that optimist alternate reality game in an attempt to bridge its story with the one in the movie. The studio and Imagineering weren't planning to do anything, so when we saw thousands of fans looking under every rock for something that we knew wasn't coming, We got tired of waiting around for someone else to do it for us. That was the first of many times that life imitated art in our relationship with this movie. There's a symphony of subtext simmering beneath the dialogue between Nix and Frank. And one of the central ideological conflicts of the story is established right here. When Nix asks, If it did, you know, technically fly, what would its purpose be? How would your jetpack make the world a better place? And Frank responds, Can't it just be fun? They've announced themselves as agents of purpose and imagination, single-minded practicality versus boundless invention. In response to Frank's question, 
There's an extended line from Nix in the shooting script that didn't make the cut, which I will do my best to perform for you now. <clears throat> Mr. Walker, do you think the wheel was fun? Or the light bulb? Or the cure for polio? That was an absolute barrel of monkeys. Please tell me you can do better than fun. <laughs> Doubling down, Nix offers... And if it doesn't work, it has no purpose at all. Thank you for your time, Mr. Walker. And in that line, a theme that reverberates across the entire movie is crystallized. For reasons that become more fully expressed later in the movie, Nix's blind dedication to productivity makes him, beyond risk-averse, he stigmatizes failure above all else. A jetpack that doesn't work is just a failed invention, not a step on the road to discovery. Tomorrowland may not be science fiction in the expected sense, but it's a story that carries at its heart a defense of the scientific method itself, embracing failure as a necessary part of the process of invention. That idea begins here in this scene, but it finds its way into all corners of the movie, and I'll do my best to call them out as we make our way through the story in future episodes. So after Frank is rejected, he sits alone on a bench with his hands folded over the bagged jetpack in his lap. This is the moment the audience is given the aforementioned flashback within a flashback a glimpse into Frank's relationship with his father. This moment truncates the previously multi-scene opening into a few exchanged words that really cement Frank as a dedicated optimist who refuses to give up, even in the face of continued rejection from all of the staunchly narrow-minded adults in his life. He's an outcast, yearning for belonging, who is destined to ultimately be cast out from the companionship he eventually finds. Now, if you're wondering whatever happened to Frank's mother, the shooting script included a short interaction with a fellow standing in line for the inventors competition, which addresses this. And it's an exchange which I will dramatize for you now. This line is for inventors. Yeah, thanks. I know. So, you invent that plant? The soil. I thought soil's already invented. <clears throat> Where are your parents? My mom's dead, and my dad's still coming to terms with the Industrial Revolution. Where are yours? <laughs> I'm going to pause here for a pedantic uh, side note. In the transition back from this flashback inception, uh, there's a really strange two-frame fade, and I have no idea why it's there. Uh, the flashback is entered with a hard cut, and two frames is hardly enough to be considered a fade out, but I can't unsee it. And I felt compelled to curse all of those listening by pointing it out. So we can all marvel at it together. I'm sorry. When Athena swoops in and offers Frank an invitational pin against Nix's wishes, it's the first act of kindness he's been shown. And not unlike the tinkering that he escapes to in his daily life filled with abuse, it's from a machine. Frank's uh, ineptitude at following Athena's secret instructions always got a big laugh every time I saw it in theaters. Uh, <laughs> he's so charmingly unaware, uh, with no idea of the gravity of Athena's response when he asks, Who are you? I'm the future, Frank Walker. It's a poignant setup to be later paid off. 
and a great transitional beat as Frank finally looks at the pin she shoved into his hand. Uh, The scene description in the screenplay is so delightful here, I want to highlight it. What was that? Confusion, excitement, love at first sight, all firing across his neurons as he remembers his clenched fist, slowly opens it and looks inside to see the coolest pin you've ever seen, emblazoned with a majestic letter T. Music swells because this means something. (laughs) Just beautiful. As young Frank uh, makes his way to follow Athena, Nix, and his Nix Six onto the It's a Small World attraction, we've got a cameo appearance by composer Michael Giacchino as a cast member asking guests to wait for the next boat. Beyond the sheer joy at his appearance, I'm much more appreciative of the function he's performing. It's a subtle operational detail, but he's making sure that there's a buffer boat between Nix's and the regular guests, lest they see the secret passage unlock and swallow their boat beneath the ride. Giacchino insists that his character's name was Mike Lazarus, a recovering alcoholic who is trying to get his life back together. And I am happy to keep his flame alive. Mike could go into Tomorrowland. Why not? Mike should have a pin. Then if I'm Why can't Mike have a pin? This role in this movie, this is going to launch me into a completely different stratosphere. Haston and I were fortunate to visit Disneyland on the day the It's a Small World exteriors were filmed. They had uh, constructed a handful of period-appropriate sunshade structures uh, in an attempt to make the Disneyland version of the queue area look a bit more like the original World's Fair appearance. It had this uh, massive uh, blue screen covering the facade that was going to be replaced digitally. I remember us being so impressed that they had gone to the trouble of replicating the uh, vintage style boats to replace the modern ones. And eventually we even got a chance to sit in one uh, when they brought it out of the archives for the Blu-ray release junket. That was cool. Now, inside the ride, uh, keen-eyed Disney Parks fans will notice that while there is an Eiffel Tower in the European room, it doesn't appear in the finale room as it's depicted in the film. But it's fun to give a little wink to that empty corner when you pass by it on the ride. Ever since it was revealed in uh, a Japanese trailer, the concept of a laser beam shooting down from the top of the Eiffel Tower to scan a lapel pin that unlocks a secret ramp underneath the ride, it really fired my imagination. Uh, I understand that many of the direct references to Walt Disney, the man who in the fiction of the movie was a member of the Secret Plus Ultra Society, uh, they cut those out of the movie out of... I guess, a fear of seeming too self-serving or corporately synergistic, even though obviously I and many other fans would have celebrated their inclusion. I would imagine that this extended to the uh, American marketing for the movie, which didn't really lean on this concept, which I think is a shame. It's such a compelling visual and a twist on this location that so many people are familiar with. There was a presentation on the production design of the World's Fair sequences held at the Destination D convention in 2014, and uh, the production designer, Ramsey Avery, was on stage, and he mentioned that the angle of the slope on the drop that they created for the scene was taken directly from the first drop in Pirates of the Caribbean, which is pretty darn cool. 
I love that you can see it retracting in the background after Frank splashes down. Now, right before Frank arrives at the transport platform, this is where the deleted uh, plus ultra historical animation was going to originally be shown. Uh, They actually filmed him floating through like vapor screens with the animation projected onto it. And apparently they got as far as having ILM model some illustrated cutouts that would have popped up around him. But when it was deemed too much of an interruption for the pace of the adventure, uh, they continued to try to include it with a, a healthy dose of George Clooney interruptions to soften the expositional dump. And Brad Bird eventually felt the short film was sufficiently important context for the movie. Uh, he attempted to get theaters to attach it to the start of the movie right before its release. But unfortunately, he was only able to convince a few theater chains to do so. Thankfully, now everyone has the option to enjoy the film with the short attached on the home video release. You are about to enter a world of miracles and wonders, a shining beacon of hope for humankind. And in just 20 short years, we will share this extraordinary place with the entire world. So, would you like to see it? A truncated and supposedly redacted early version of the animation was shown uh, during a presentation at D23 in 2013 when Brad Bird and Damon Lindelof unveiled this mysterious 1952 box, supposedly transferred from an early experimental laser disc that was inside. I'd really love to see that version again that was like fake redacted and they, they didn't say the name Plus Ultra. They bleeped it out and... I really hope it finds its way online at some point. Good afternoon. Please step aboard the transport. The site is active. That voice that Frank hears when he steps onto the platform uh, was originally a different recording in the version of the scene that they showed at Destination D, which I just so happened to take a pocket recording of. Good afternoon. Please step aboard the transport. The site is active. That voice role isn't listed in the credits, but according to Brad Bird, it was provided by his wife, Liz. Please put on your head protection in order to prevent significant injury. Injury? The signage inside the transport cabin really beautifully mirrors the special transit lines to the World's Fair from the New York subway at the time. And those metal screens that slide down over the windows before the launch are uh, visual and audio parallel to Frank's house later in the movie, which I'll make sure to note in more detail when we reach that in a later episode. Transport will commence in 10 seconds. This world is so fully designed down to the protective foot straps on the floor, which Frank completely neglects to use as he's tossed around the cabin. Uh, It's fun to imagine the group that just preceded him going through the same process. I'm guessing they did better than he did. (laughs) There was some discussion between Brad Bird and his brilliant director of photography, Claudio Miranda, uh, about the possibility of opening up the mat and expanding the frame for sequences that are in Tomorrowland, uh, particularly in the IMAX release. Uh, It never really came to be, but the IMAX release that did happen actually did include an open mat, but it was across the entire movie, and it gave a little bit more image on the top and bottom of the screen. 
when young Frank crosses that threshold and takes his first step into Tomorrowland, we see a small flying ship with Athena looking out the window. Uh, there's only room inside for her, Nyx, the pilot, and one member of the Nyx Six. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that there was at least two other ships carrying the rest of those guests that departed before they did. Um, I'd hate to think that there wasn't and something else <laughs> happened to them. And I want to file this ship on my list of things from the movie that I wish were made as toys, but never were. At the end of the unfinished walkway, uh, two 3D printing drones rumble into the frame and continue construction. Uh, a pair of double helix-shaped support structures building out the DNA of the still-under-construction city of the future. The aesthetic of this first glimpse of Tomorrowland was surprising to me uh, the first time I saw it in a short preview at Disneyland's Magic Eye Theater. You know, being set in 1964, I expected to see like a retro-inspired future uh, that would later be contrasted by the 1984 Pinvitation version that would be seen by Casey. But in retrospect, I really think I understand why this choice was made. Uh, in the limited number of glimpses were given of the city, making it a legitimately aspirational vision, even to contemporary eyes, it's much more in line with its narrative function in the movie. Uh, a retro future is something that almost feels attainable or in most cases already attained. And this is a story about something that's still on the horizon, something we still need to actively reach for if we've got any hope of attaining it. Frank's jetpack is ripped from his bag after he's forced over the edge of the walkway onto another one just below where he comes face to face with a robot called a Goliath. In a cute little moment that holds more than it first appears, the Goliath not only fixes Frank's jetpack, he makes the incomplete invention functional. Another one of the movie's themes comes into focus here. Uh, Nixon and Frank are one of several pairs of opposites in the story, and they represent isolation and collaboration. Nix wants to close off Tomorrowland, and Frank wants to open it up. It's the one great man theory of history versus open collaborative achievement. It's no coincidence that Frank has to be snuck in in the first place. Nix is cut off, left with only Plus Ultra's worst tendencies, which evolved into selfishness due to his own human frailty. But Athena's efforts to continue to recruit dreamers uh, preserves the most lofty ambitions of that same organization, frozen and unchanging within her programming. These sets of dichotomies uh, set the stage for the movie to make its final thematic statements regarding the past and how we can take inspiration while learning from its failures rather than succumbing to them by pretending they don't exist. The look on young Frank's face when he finally grabs onto his jetpack as they both fall through midair and the clouds part for a moment to give him his first look at that inspirational cityscape. 
I found that relatable since I first saw it uh, with that majestic plus ultra theme soaring underneath. The Optimist alternate reality game really felt like an unrealized glimpse of the future for those of us that played it. And that was the first of a lot of unintended parallels with Frank's journey in the movie. Now, Nick's rolling his eyes at Frank showing off his newly completed jetpack was originally in response to a cut line from Athena asking if we can keep him <laughs> like he's a puppy. Uh, another deleted moment here that still has some remnants visible in the finished film. Uh, young Frank buys Athena a souvenir pin from the fair and he gives it to her here. Uh, if you go frame by frame in the moment when Athena takes Frank's hand before the big freeze frame moment, there are a couple frames where you can see the souvenir pin in its package in his hand. And it's actually one of the few props that appears to be an actual vintage pin and not something that they redesigned for the movie. When young Frank asks, What is this place? And the two youngsters turn to face the sprawling Tomorrowland before them, he was originally answered by a smash cut to the opening title, Tomorrowland. What is this place? Boom, Tomorrowland. That was before the non-linear opening. And now we've got a record scratch freeze frame with a grumpy old Frank declaring, And then everything went to hell. Which brings us appropriately to the end of our sequence for this episode. With all of its uh, timelines nested within timelines and a lot of ground covered, it's hard to believe that Frank's entire introduction, including his adventure at the World's Fair and in Tomorrowland, only lasts about 15 minutes. Uh, as harshly as that structure has been criticized, considering the nature of a two-hander story with multiple lead characters sharing an inverted journey, both characters are fully introduced uh, and right on the precipice of adventure at the traditional 30-minute first act mark. Now, I don't personally believe in the assumption of a structure in analysis, and quite frankly, I think that this movie would more closely conform to a five-act structure if you held a tuning fork to my head. But the final cut does have major shifts that could be considered act breaks conforming with a traditional three-act structure. They just don't look like most are expecting. But we'll talk more about that once we meet Casey Newton, which is what our next episode is entirely dedicated to. Circling back to our musical theme tracker before we go, in the first 15 minutes or so that we covered in this episode, Athena's theme appears three times, the Plus Ultra and Tomorrowland themes both played six times each, and believe it or not, Nyx's theme appears once, underneath the insert shot of the ominous Nixie Tube countdown clock. If you want to play along at home with your own tally, uh, do let me know if your count ended up different than mine. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at The Tomorrow Time or send us an email at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S -S at tomorrowlandtimes.com. If you'd like to record us an audio message, we'd love to hear any memories you might have of the first time you saw Tomorrowland, and we might just play it on a future episode. 
I want to thank everyone for continuing to take this walk through Tomorrowland with me. Join us next time as we ponder the consequences of a bit of Newtonian determinism. We'll be joining you, as always, from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there is always a place where dreamers can stick together.